previously on Breakdown. So we went immediately down to that meeting room. And I remember thinking at that moment, I wish I could remember my U.S. history, my U.S. Constitution better, because I don't think this is legal, but I, I can't remember enough from my college days to know that for sure. You know, the fact is about we had court cases that were going on at the time, and it was a procedural move that we knew that we're not going to move forward if uh, if those court cases did not move forward. Uh, this had some had been done in 1960 with the Kennedy-Nixon race uh, when they disputed over the state of Hawaii. You should look that up if you don't know about it. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly it looks like they're going to face an indictment. Now, you know, whether they're worried about that, I don't know. More than 1,000 witness interviews and depositions, nine public hearings, court fights, contempt of Congress charges, and one unprecedented presidential subpoena. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol produced hours of spellbinding television and its share of shocking revelations. I was somewhat demoralized because I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, He's become detached from reality if he really believes this stuff. On the other hand, you know, when I went into this and would tell him how crazy some of these allegations were, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. And I said, okay, well, with regard to Georgia, we looked at the tape, we interviewed the witnesses. There is no suitcase. The president kept fixating on this suitcase that supposedly had fraudulent ballots and that the suitcase was rolled out from under the table. And I said, no, sir, there is no suitcase. You can watch that video over and over. There is no suitcase. There is a wheeled bin where they carry the ballots, and that's just how they move ballots around that facility. There's nothing suspicious about that at all. I told him that my personal viewpoint was that the Electoral College had met, uh, which is the... Uh, system that our uh, country is, is set under to elect a president and vice president. And I believed at that point that the um, means for him to pursue uh, litigation um, uh, was probably closed. And you recall what his response, if any, was? He disagreed. To this former congressional reporter, the hearings truly challenged my perception of what a hearing could be. They proved that members of Congress could tell a disciplined, cohesive story while minimizing their urge for circular grandstanding. But that wasn't all the select committee hearings did. They did some heavy lifting for prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, who've been working quietly on a probe of their own, one that could also culminate in a subpoena for former President Donald Trump's testimony and one that could possibly culminate in an indictment of the former president. Welcome back to Season 9 of Breakdown, the podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that takes you inside Georgia's most important cases. I'm Bill Rankin, the AJC's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Coming up, we'll explain how January 6th investigators in Washington may be helping their Fulton County counterparts. We'll dissect a court order from California which one of our legal experts describes as smoking gun evidence for Fulton County. And there was a court hearing for Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. This is episode 17, What Trump Knew, of season nine of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, 
from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. We've talked about mens rea before, the Latin term for guilty mind. It's all about criminal intent, what's needed to secure convictions in court. And it can be hard to nail down. It's not often a prosecutor has a window into someone's mind, what they knew and what they were thinking as they committed a crime. Did they know better? Just how much information did they have about the situation and their victim? Legal experts we've talked to believe that the select committee hearings have presented evidence that could help Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should she decide to press charges against Trump or some of his allies. These hearings have been a boon for her prosecution. You know, they've helped gather a lot of evidence and she's gathered a tremendous amount on her own with her special grand jury. That's attorney Norm Eisen, President Barack Obama's former ethics czar. He also co-authored a Brookings report on the Fulton investigation. They've taken us into places that it might have taken her years to gain access to uh, the evidence and the witnesses. Uh, The inner sanctum of the Oval Office, where we've learned, for example, the question of whether or not to appoint Jeffrey Clark as attorney general because he wanted to among other places, drive the phony fraud claims in Georgia. And um, the debates that went on there, the halls of the Department of Justice, which can be hard for even D.C.-based federal prosecutors who work there to get evidence about what goes on behind the scenes. The key question involving former President Trump is whether he knew he was spreading false claims about the election being stolen here in Georgia. Did he know he'd actually lost to Joe Biden, yet made the false claims anyway in a concerted attempt to reclaim the White House? Or did he truly believe this stuff? Like what he told Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in the January 2nd, 2021 phone call. They weren't in an official uh, voter box. They were in what looked to be uh, uh, suitcases or trunks, uh, suitcases, but they weren't in, uh, in voter boxes. Uh, the minimum number it could be because we watched it and they they watched it certified uh, in slow motion, instant replay, if you can believe it, but they had slow motion and it was magnified many times over. And the minimum it was was 18,000 ballots, all for Biden. Uh, the other thing, uh, dead people. So dead people voted. And I think uh, the, the number is in the pro- uh, close to 5,000 people. And they went to uh, obituaries. They went to uh, all sorts of methods to come up with an accurate number. And a minimum is close to about 5,000 voters. I won this election by hundreds of thousands of votes. There's no way I lost Georgia. There's no way. We won by hundreds of thousands of votes. 
I'm just going by small numbers. When you add them up, they're many times the 11,000. But but I won that state by hundreds of thousands of votes. We realize many of you may be following the select committee as closely as we are. But to us, some of its testimony and information has been critically important. Such as what Steve Bannon, Trump's former chief White House strategist, said to a group of associates from China just a few days before the election, that a plan was already in place. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs voted May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. Also, also, if if Trump is losing... By 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. <laughs> no, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. If Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy Bannon was recently sentenced to four months in prison for criminal contempt of Congress for not honoring his subpoena to appear before the select committee. There's also what people inside the White House heard Trump say in the days and weeks after the election. Here's what Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, told the select committee. So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion going on. And the president says, I think it's, it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of, yeah, we lost, we need, we need to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden. There's also Alyssa Farah, who served as the White House Director of Strategic Communications. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like, give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? And there's Cassidy Hutchinson, the former assistant to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Mark raised it with me on the 18th. And so following that conversation where the motorcade ride driving back to the White House, and I said, like, does the president really think that he lost? And he said, you know, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. And he thinks that there might be enough to overturn the election, but, you know, he, he pretty much has acknowledged that, he, that he's lost. Hutchinson is said to be cooperating with the special purpose grand jury. Here's Norm Eisen again. Would Fannie Willis even know about the existence of Cassidy Hutchinson? Apparently the U.S. Department of Justice, again, according to the media, didn't before she showed up, and she's the John Dean of these hearings. John Dean was President Richard Nixon's White House counsel. He played a role in the cover-up of the Watergate scandal and would go to prison for it. But it was his revelations to federal investigators and his testimony before a Senate Select Committee that ultimately doomed Nixon. Here he is famously testifying before the committee about what he had told Nixon during one of their conversations. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the president and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency and if the cancer was not removed, the president himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. Hutchinson, of course, is not going to prison. 
But her revelations about what Trump knew and when he knew it, and what Trump said and when he said it, have thrust her into the national spotlight. And made her, potentially, an extremely valuable witness. Here she is telling the Select Committee about the day the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a lawsuit contesting the 2020 presidential election. She says she and Meadows were returning from a Christmas reception when they crossed paths with Trump in the Rose Garden Colonnade. The president was fired up about the Supreme Court decision. And so I was standing next to Mr. Meadows, but I stepped back so I was probably two, three feet catty corner from him, diagonal from him. The president just raging about the decision and how it's wrong and why didn't we make more calls and just... His typical anger outburst at this decision. And the president said, he had, I put the, so he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. And here's what she said she told Meadows after Trump's January 2nd, 2021 phone call to Raffensperger. I remember looking at Mark and I said, Mark, you can't possibly think we're going to pull this off. Like, that call was crazy. And he looked at me and just started shaking his head. And he was like, no, Cass, you know, he knows it's over. He knows he lost. But we're going to keep trying. There's some good options out there still. We're going to keep trying. After much of this testimony was presented at the most recent select committee hearing, Representative Elaine Luria of Virginia said this. Purposeful lies made in public directly at odds with what Donald Trump knew from unassailable sources, the Justice Department's own investigations, and his own campaign. Donald Trump maliciously repeated this nonsense to a wide audience over and over again. His intent was to deceive. President Trump's plan also involved trying to coerce government officials to change the election outcome in the states he lost. He personally reached out to numerous state officials and pressured them to take unlawful steps to alter the election results in those states. These actions, taken directly by the president himself, made it clear what his intentions were to prevent the orderly transfer of power. Interestingly, if Fulton prosecutors want the special grand jurors to see the testimony for themselves, they can do it. Well, admissible to the grand jury is the short answer is everything. There's no evidentiary constraints on what goes before the grand jury. The grand jury decides whether to listen or not, but it's an open, especially a special grand jury like this one, which whose purpose is investigative. There's no reason you couldn't just sit them down and play the commission hearings and say, take what you will from it and decide what it means. That's Atlanta lawyer Brandon Bullard, who's following the investigation. Of course, you have a prosecutor in there guiding them and and asking the questions and, and advising the grand jurors about the law and the meaning of the law and, the, and what the elements of the possible offenses would be, whether something would count, whether what its relevancy might be. But as far as evidentiary prohibitions, there's no hearsay rules. Hearsay is admissible in, in grand jury testimony. So uh, it's it's all fair game. What the, the real question, and it's the legally significant question, is what the grand jury makes of it when and if it makes a recommendation. As for what Bullard takes away from the select committee testimony? It certainly cannot hurt. If you were looking to build a case against the former president and his cohorts, then um, having this information, this 
that suggests that there is an ongoing plan that the president was not just a part of, but central to that plan and appears to have appears to have been told that uh, he had lost the election and uh, by several sources you would think he would consider reputable, uh, sort of undermines the obvious defense of, well, he really believed he won the election and he was just trying to obey the law. But we really do now seem like we have a goal, uh, an illegitimate goal that we are trying to accomplish by means both perhaps criminal and, and not. Certainly less than above board. It's certainly, I guess, serendipitous that the Fulton DA's office can profit from the vast investigative resources and leverage of the federal government. Here's Norm Eisen again, hammering home the importance of the select committee testimony. Getting inside of Trump's head, his intent, all of them testified about Trump admitting that he had lost. So that means, and we heard the Raffensperger tape again, just, quote, find 11,780 votes. I've said this before when we've chatted, but Trump knew those votes did not exist. And that's a solicitation of election fraud that uh, the Georgia D- Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, can prosecute. And uh, it, uh, and I think it also makes out um, the keystone in a RICO conspiracy, this whole vast operation that boiled down to that January 2nd phone call. The Georgia state investigation is both the most important and the most advanced of the of all of the criminal investigations arising out of the events leading up to and on January 6th. And it's appropriate that... Um, D.A. Willis go first because of the central importance of Georgia to the larger conspiracy. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We also had a bit of a bombshell drop out of an order issued by a federal judge in Santa Ana, California. Judge David O. Carter, put on the bench by President Bill Clinton, was addressing a lawsuit from attorney John Eastman. Eastman is suing the House Select Committee, which has been trying for months now to get his emails. Eastman is a former law school dean who testified before one of Georgia's legislative committees in December 2020, saying there was evidence of widespread fraud. He told lawmakers it was their duty to protect the integrity of the Georgia election. Eastman also authored legal memos to the Trump campaign detailing a plan in which Vice President Mike Pence could refuse to count some of President Joe Biden's votes. Eastman said the select committee couldn't have his emails because they were protected under the work product privilege and the attorney-client privilege. In all, 562 documents were in dispute. Judge Carter, for the most part, agreed with Eastman. 
but he ruled that 20 documents had to be turned over. And, most significantly, Carter wrote that four of those emails showed that then-President Trump had been told by his own lawyers that his claims of widespread voter fraud were false. It's important to note that, on December 4, 2020, Trump had filed a lawsuit in state court that alleged Fulton County improperly counted 10,315 votes of dead people, 2,560 votes cast by felons, and 2,423 votes from unregistered voters. When that suit was going nowhere, the president planned to bring a similar lawsuit against Georgia in federal court in Atlanta. But on December 30th, Eastman sent an email relaying concerns by Trump's team about including specific numbers of allegedly miscast votes in the federal suit. The next day, he wrote this, and he's referring to a verification of the facts in the state lawsuit that Trump signed himself. Quote, Although the president signed a verification for the state lawsuit back on December 1st, he has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence proffered by the experts have been inaccurate. For him to sign a new verification with that knowledge would not be accurate. But Trump did it anyway. The federal lawsuit was filed that day citing the same numbers from the state lawsuit, and Trump signed his name verifying the facts were true and correct. Judge Carter wrote, quote, The emails show that President Trump knew that the specific numbers of voter fraud were wrong, but continued to tout those numbers, both in court and to the public. Carter also wrote, the emails are, quote, sufficiently related to and in furtherance of a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Make note that Eastman's email was sent just four days before, before Trump, Mark Meadows, and others made the phone call to Secretary of State Raffensperger asking him to find enough votes to change the outcome. Carter found that the emails had to be disclosed to the Select Committee under the crime fraud exception. The crime fraud exception says that um, right that otherwise privileged materials between an attorney and their client um, can't be revealed for an investigation or can't be turned over or be forcibly turned over, um, except when the lawyer is not acting as a lawyer, not acting as counsel, but is acting right as as a you know, a partner in the crime in furtherance of a crime, that, that those materials no longer are privileged and can in fact be turned over to the government and, and be used as evidence of a crime. That's Anthony Michael Christ, a constitutional law professor from Georgia State University. He's been closely following the special grand jury. Christ says Eastman's emails are a big deal. So I, I think what we have in some respects is a kind of smoking gun evidence of an intent to solicit election fraud in a way that we had a lot of circumstantial evidence before suggesting that the former president knew better. But now we really have it in writing um, that he, he in fact knew that the allegations he was making about the state of the elections in Georgia were false. Christ puts it in perspective. So I think the real question that we've always had in terms of criminality and the potential that Donald Trump ran afoul of Georgia law, um, particularly with the phone call to Brad Raffensperger, was what did he know and when did he know it in terms of the, the falsity behind the accusations that there was widespread election fraud? And I think we all thought, right, that, you know, 
probably from the beginning that he knew better. But over time with the January 6th committee in particular, we learned that people within the administration, um, you know, the Trump administration told the former president, no, these allegations are false. We know that, uh, you know, people in the secretary of state's office similarly made those, you know, suggestions to the former president that no, you know, these things were not true. Christ calls this the most damning piece of evidence made public so far that shows Trump's intent in making the phone call to Raffensperger. And so, right, the real question always always that that kind of arose from that was when Donald Trump said to Brad Raffensperger, I need you to find me, right, however many thousand votes, um, you know, was he making a a sincere effort to say, I think there's something wrong here, I'm asking you to look into it? Or was Donald Trump saying, I want you to manipulate the documents no matter what. I want you to come out with this end result no matter what you have to do to get there. And and this seems to be a major piece of evidence to suggest that this was not some kind of innocent uh, you know, attempt to to um to to ask Brad Raffensperger to just look into things. And you know, it wasn't a mistake of fact where Donald Trump honestly believed that there were thousands and thousands and thousands of unlawfully cast votes that would swing the election in his direction, that he was told to the contrary. He knew that those allegations were false. But yet, when you know push came to shove, whether it be in a court record or whether it be in a phone call, he continued to press on with that, with that theme um, and use that to justify his, his coercive actions. So Tamar, you went on a road trip. I did to the small city of Pickens, South Carolina, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains and about 20 miles west of Greenville. The fall colors were out. It was pretty charming. On October 26th at the Pickens County Courthouse, Circuit Court Judge Edward Miller is presiding. At issue is whether former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has to come to Atlanta and testify before the special purpose grand jury. Meadows now lives in Pickens County. In court filings a day before and the morning of the hearing, Meadows' lawyer, James Bannister, sought to get a ruling rejecting the out-of-state material witness subpoena. He argued that the subpoena, with an appearance date of September 27th, was now moot. That date had come and gone. Deputy Fulton County DA Will Wooten had filed a response to that. He gave four new dates in November in which Meadows could appear. Bannister also asserted executive privilege claims, an issue that is currently being litigated in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., that's over whether the Select Committee can get Meadows to come testify, and Bannister contended the special purpose grand jury is a civil proceeding, not a criminal one, because it doesn't have the power to indict. And, for that reason, a witness from South Carolina cannot be compelled to appear before it. As for the hearing, it started more than 30 minutes late, and I was surprised it was so sparsely attended. Meadows wasn't there, and neither were many members of the press. Also, the microphones didn't appear to be working, and Tamar had to record it from where she was sitting with other members of the press. So we're going to hear a bit of typing on laptops. Not only that, there are cars and trucks driving by, and it sounds like they are passing by a big open window. So bear with us on this audio. We'll try to use it judiciously. Representing the state was Circuit Solicitor Walt Wilkins. Your Honor, the state filed a petition on behalf of the Fulton County District Attorney's Office uh, in September, uh, compelling the attendance of uh, Mark Randall Meadows as a witness uh, for their special grand jury. 
Wilkins calls Wooten from the Fulton DA's office to the witness stand. He's one of the prosecutors assigned to the special grand jury probe. He tells the court how the special grand jury came to be. And um, what is the purpose of the special purpose grand jury? Uh, yes, sir. The, the, the kind of scope of the authority to investigate lies within that handling order itself. The general purpose is to investigate um, the possibility of any criminal disruptions to the 2020 elections in Georgia. Wilkins then asks Wooten why Meadows is needed. Wooten says there are six reasons. The first is the kind of roles and responsibilities of the witness in his position as chief of staff for former President Donald Trump. Um, the second, specifically pertaining to the time period weeks before, during, and after the 2020 election, November 2020 election. Um, the second is a meeting that occurred at the White House on December the 21st of 2020. Uh, the witness was present at that meeting, also present. Um, was former President Trump and several members of Congress. The witness tweeted subsequent to that meeting confirming that he was in attendance there. And the subject matter of that uh, meeting, we believe, was uh, related to the certification of electoral college votes for various states, including Georgia. Wooten then lists three other reasons. Meadows' December 22, 2020 visit to Cobb County during a signature match audit, Emails Meadows sent to the U.S. Justice Department in December 2020 and January 2021. And Meadows was on the January 2nd, 2021 phone call with Brad Raffensperger. Here's the sixth reason. And the sixth area is kind of the witness's own unique knowledge about the coordination, execution, um, and communications about each of those other five areas. The information that would be unique to him as an individual that only he would have related to his communication Wilkins also walks Wooten through Governor Brian Kemp's challenge to quash his subpoena. Kemp had contended he enjoyed sovereign immunity from testifying because the special grand jury was civil in nature. Wooten explains that Judge Robert McBurney rejected that argument. And Judge McBurney, who is the judge that's overseeing the special purpose grand jury and most of the uh, matters connected to it, um, kind of did an analysis of that argument and held that it's unequivocally a criminal proceeding that is in no way a civil proceeding um, and, and denied to find the sovereign immunity applied in that case because of the criminal nature of the grand jury um, and its authorization to conduct a criminal investigation. Bannister then has his turn to cross-examine Wooten. He hits home his argument that the September 27th date has passed. He asks Wooten if he agrees the subpoena specifically requests Meadows appear on September 27th. Wooten says yes. But Wooten then says the Georgia statute doesn't even require a date for a special grand jury appearance, and he says it's within his authority to submit new dates for Meadows to appear. Bannister then asks Wooten about evidence and testimony the special grand jury has taken since it issued its subpoena to Meadows. Wooten responds that he's hesitant to answer that because of the rules for grand jury secrecy. Bannister is trying, and not succeeding, to find out if the makeup of the investigation has changed to the point where Meadows may no longer be a material witness. Well, getting nowhere on that, Bannister then turns to the DA's office being disqualified from investigating Republican Lieutenant Governor candidate Burt Jones. Bannister goes into detail about how D.A. Fonnie Willis, a Democrat, had held a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, 
the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. He notes that Judge McBurney found that inappropriate and disqualified the office from investigating Jones. And when Bannister asks Wooten if there are any subjects or targets of the investigation who are not professed Republicans, Judge Miller steps in. He says, Mr. Bannister, this is getting far afield of the purpose of this hearing, and this is not a political hearing. When it comes time to wrap it up, Bannister repeats the arguments he raised in his court motions. He also says Meadows has privacy rights that need to be protected. Bannister notes that the areas of inquiry sought by the Fulton DA's office all involve the time Meadows worked for President Trump. And Meadows is currently in litigation with the House Select Committee, asserting that he does not have to testify there under claims of executive privilege. Bannister tells Judge Miller if the federal judge in Washington decides Meadows has asserted rightful claims of executive privilege, he won't be a material witness in the Fulton County case. So wouldn't it make sense to postpone a decision here today until we get some guidance from the federal judge in D.C.? But Judge Miller wasn't going to wait. Well, he was eloquently enumerated your arguments, which I think perhaps some appellate court can review. But based on what's before me today, I'm going to find that the witness is material and necessary to the investigation. That bears repeating. The judge said, well, you have eloquently enumerated your arguments, which I think perhaps an appellate court can review. But based on what's before me today, I'm going to find that the witness is material and necessary to the investigation. Right after the hearing, Bannister says he'll appeal Judge Miller's decision. It could go to the South Carolina Court of Appeals, although the state Supreme Court could take it up too. But later in the day, Bannister issued a statement saying, quote, We're looking into legal options based on the judge's ruling from the bench. It would be inappropriate to comment further on these issues until the judge has issued a final written order. He also notes that, quote, Because of the unusual nature of the Georgia proceeding, some of these issues have never been addressed in South Carolina. In yet another development, Justice Clarence Thomas put a temporary hold on an order directing Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina to testify before the special purpose grand jury. Graham's appeal went before Thomas because he is the justice designated to take emergency requests from cases out of the federal appeals court in Atlanta. His one-sentence order says Graham's case, quote, is hereby stayed pending further order of the undersigned or of the court. It's not unusual for a justice to do this. It allows both sides to file their briefs before the full court decides the issue. And the issue here is Graham's lawyers are seeking to stop the senator from being questioned by the special grand jury until his appeal of U.S. District Court Judge Lee Martin May's order is fully considered. Next, on Breakdown. We plan to take the week off and catch our breath. If big news breaks out, we could show up again before that. Please keep an eye on your podcast feed. But if all remains quiet on the Southern Front, we'll return on November 15th. Breakdown sound engineer is Shane, Shaney B. Backler. Our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors, Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. Thanks so very much for listening. We can't do this without you. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.
ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.